You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is a yoga class? Get out of here. You're an animal, you animal you. That means you're more than 90% water. But if that isn't enough... You surround yourself with the stuff. How else are you going to get the cheese off the lasagna pan? Or the salty sweat off your back? To ensure that you're inoffensive at parties. Or when the mercury hits 80+, plus, keep your cool. There's no other trio of atoms, in this case two hydrogen and one oxygen, that is as essential to survival. But before you can surround yourself with this useful liquid, you have to get to it or get it to you. And that's not easy for everyone. Take a glass of clear mountain water and add a cup of salt. The result? Well, you, you human you, might gargle with it, but you can't drink it. So can we get the salt out? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science. If we extract salt from seawater, could you drink it? Or if we take the salt... And other key ingredients... ...from urine, would you drink it? Nothing against salt. I mean, it tastes great on fries. But an overabundance of salt is choking a major wetland in California. A visit there coming up, along with the history of water and the hunt for it on other worlds. Will we find it? Water the chances. I'll drink to that. Birds love a wetland, otherwise known as a bog, a marsh, sometimes a swamp, a fen. Under the Clean Water Act, the primary federal law that deals with water pollution in the U.S., wetlands are defined as... Those areas that are inundated or saturated by surface or groundwater at a frequency and duration sufficient to support and that under normal circumstances do support a prevalence of vegetation typically adapted for life in saturated soil conditions. What kind of bureaucratic sleepies is that? Wetlands are where the action is. Why, here are just a few wetland metaphors, beginning with... A sponge. Wetlands absorb excess water from runoff and flood. A pillow. Where birds rest their weary bird bones. An egg beater. Because they mix nutrients and oxygen in water. A coffee filter. Filter impurities and make espresso. Half credit. And acid. They neutralize toxic substances. A smorgasbord. All sorts of nutrients for wildlife and humans. And finally, wetlands are soap. Because they clean the environment. Basically, the wetland is nature's equivalent to the human kidney. Uh, If you're a fan of clean water, you're a fan of maintaining wetlands. The biggest wetland restoration project in the United States is going on just a few miles from where I'm sitting now. On the south shore of the San Francisco Bay, where 150 years ago wetlands were converted to enclosed watery basins for making salt. 
and are now being converted back to wetlands. The 15,000 acres of desalting is the South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project. I'm John Bourgeois. I'm the executive project manager for the South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project. So we're at the far south end of San Francisco Bay. San Francisco Bay has lost about 85 to 90 percent of its tidal marshes for a lot of reasons, for fill, for development, for agriculture. But in the far south end of the bay here, a majority of the wetlands have been lost to salt evaporation ponds. These are industrial salt production ponds that were used to evaporate the bay water, concentrate the salts, and eventually harvest salts. And if it weren't quite so foggy this morning, you could look north across the bay, right over there, and you could see these tall white mounds, and those are actually mounds of salt from the salt-making process that are still being produced in San Francisco Bay. And the salt comes from the ocean. You evaporate the water and you're left with the salt. Correct. The salt-making process comes from two of the most basic things on Earth, the ocean and the sun. And then how do you make salt from that? You, you raise the water levels, so you have a lot of salty water from the ocean. And then what happens next? Well, you let it sit and you let the sun, you let these, this beautiful California sun evaporate the water. And so the salts stay in the pond, but the water evaporates. They then pump it to the next pond and they do the same thing there. So they fill that pond up, let the sun evaporate it, and they pump it to the consecutive pond. So as we move on down the chain, if you look at the south end of San Francisco Bay, it is a series of ponds. And each of them, as they pump it, becomes saltier and saltier. What does all that salt collection do to a wetland? Wetlands are in a dynamic equilibrium. They're required to have those tides and the sediments coming into them on a daily basis to sustain them. And so what we would have been looking at, you know, 150 years ago out here would have been just an extensive green grassy marsh. But they've built levees around them and they've been flooded up. And so now we're seeing ponds. What is the function of a wetland? Wetlands have a lot of beneficial functions, and basically a wetland is the interface between the land and the water. They serve flood protection capacity. We've levied off all of our creeks, and so those floodwaters can't spill out into what used to be a vast wetland. Also tidal flooding on the high tides, you know, with rising sea levels. These communities around the bay are at greater and greater risk from tidal flooding as well. And so these marshes used to provide a huge buffer. They acted like sponges and would absorb those storm waters and protect the adjacent communities, which we've lost. And as we can see in instances like what happened in New Orleans and, and other areas, that the loss of wetlands can have catastrophic effect. It's a beautiful morning. And the birds are chirping. Walking on these public trails around a wetland is a, is a very different experience from walking around a lake or along a river. It's, uh, it's constantly changing. It's a tidal environment. So, you know, at high tide, you're going to have a different experience than you're going to have at low tide. You're going to see a completely different suite of species. You know, I grew up in South Louisiana where, uh, you know, wetlands are were a part of life and uh, I've kind of devoted my career to enjoying them and, and trying to restore them. This part is the marsh. As you said, this has been levied off. And then this body of water here where all the birds are, are, are gathering, what is that? So this is one of the former salt evaporation ponds. The industrial salt companies that were using these ponds to evaporate salt, this was one of their intake ponds where they would bring water in from the bay, store it, and use the sun to concentrate the salts. On our left here, which is all open water and ponds with, with ducks on it, used to look like what's over here to our right, which is pickleweed-dominated vegetated marsh. Wetlands are also natural filter system for the water that humans drink. How does that work? That's right. So basically wetlands act as a natural filtration device for our, our storm water that comes down. Wetlands need sediment. So as sediments are coming down our creeks and streams, 
if they can spill out into these wetlands and settle in the wetlands instead of going out into the open bay, then they can be uptake and, and broken down by the plants. So there's a, some complicated process. There's microbes in the soil, all of which work to break down some of these pollutants that uh, instead of entering straight into our bay, they can go through this massive filter system and uh, improve the water quality of our bay. So the bay, as we look now, if we look straight out, which I think we're looking north, north okay. Yep. yep, we're looking north. <laughs> so the San Francisco Bay is out there. As we look around at all the grasses and so forth around us, this would be the filter system. This would be the filter system. So everything we see looking north here, you can see those power lines way in the distance. That's about where the edge of the bay is. Everything between there and here used to be tidal marsh and that would act as a filter for all of our, our pollutants coming off our streets and our streams, and that's what we're hoping to restore. What has the San Francisco Bay lost by not having a wetland in operation for over 150 years? Since the 1850s, we've lost about 85 to 90 percent of our tidal marshes. Because of that, we've lost several species. We've lost important fisheries. Uh, we have endangered species that are now here in the bay because of that loss of habitat. The water quality of the bay has decreased and we have extensive levees that we need to maintain to protect these areas from flooding. We've definitely lost a lot. We've lost our connection with the bay, I think, as a community as well. John Bourgeois is a biologist with the South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project. We'll hear from him later in the program about just how they're removing the salt to restore the wetland ecosystem. It's not the first time that humans have mucked about with the water system, says anthropologist Brian Fagan, author of Elixir, A History of Water and Humankind. Straightening rivers, building dams, taking deserts and turning them into oases. Hello, Las Vegas. Uh, we've been trying to manage water since the birth of agriculture 10,000 years ago. But before that, well, you went to the water. It didn't come to you. Yes, indeed, you went to the water. And in the book, I tell the story of going out with three sand hunters in the Kalahari Desert. And we got thirsty, and they came to a dry watercourse, and they dug into the dry course of the river or the stream and there down at the bottom about two foot down he found water and we drank it it's amazing they knew it was there i hadn't a clue in fact you tell other stories because you've worked in africa extensively um about having witnessed and even experienced to some degree the deprivation of water firsthand Yes, uh, we, we take water for granted. We turn on a faucet, there's water. We assume water is going to be cheap and available when we want it. We water lawns. But for considerable periods of time, I lived among subsistence farmers in Central Africa who depended entirely on rainfall. And that was seasonal rainfall, and it was unpredictable, and you could get rain in one village, and then two miles away, they wouldn't get rain, and you'd be starving. And when you've seen that, you never, never forget how valuable water is to us. Now, at some point, if we go back to the birth of agriculture, uh, humans understood that they didn't have to go where the water was. They could bring the water to them. And there's a, there's a form of early water management called furrow irrigation. What is that? Well, it's quite simple. A furrow is a very shallow channel which you can dig in the soil and give it a gradient because everything depends on gravity, that water moves from a higher spot to a lower one. And one of the most fascinating things in writing this book was learning about the Maraquet and the Pocot of northern Kenya who 
actually still use furrow irrigation. It's that simple. And they divert water from rivers at high altitude, run it through very narrow canals. They go round granite outcrops. They bridge little creeks with hollowed-out trunks. And the water flows for several miles downhill to where they distribute it to their fields. And they've been doing this for centuries, and it is fundamentally self-sustaining. And what is fascinating is that a great deal of ancient Egyptian agriculture and a great deal of, say, Sumerian agriculture 5,000 years ago was based on the village. But when you start getting to the larger scale where you've got bigger authority like a temple or central government, you get huge, large-scale irrigation, much of it conducted with one view and one view alone. And that isn't effective water self-sustainability, it's yield. And when you do that, you ignore many of the bits of local knowledge that people have about things like rising salinity. And the Sasanians, for example, literally devastated thousands of hectares of southern Iraq, which became salty wilderness. You mentioned central government, and there is no central government like that of ancient Rome. The Romans had, I think what's been described, and even you described, as a brilliant technology for moving water around these aqueducts. Can you give me an example of why these were so technologically sophisticated, in what way? And was it only the emperors that received the water? What about the average Roman citizen? Actually, they weren't that sophisticated. I mean, they look sophisticated. And yes, they are in terms of building bridges to carry the aqueduct over valleys, like you find the famous one at Trier in France, or the tunnels they built, the maintenance of them. It was technologically, ultimately, quite simple because it depended on labor, labor of slaves, labor of prisoners of war, whatever. The key part was... Firstly, the gradient, and secondly, the ability to use siphons to bring water across valleys by sheer force, where they would project it down one side of the valley and then bring it up on the other side by the force of the water. They didn't have any pumps that did this. So water engineering in terms of gradient and design was very important. The actual technology was relatively simple. Okay, but it's, it's admired because it was so ingenious for the time. It was time. admired because it was ingenious and it was on an enormous scale. The other thing about aqueducts, which people often forget, is that in a way they're like rivers because they flow permanently. And you have a permanent flow of water. It comes to the city and then it's distributed out through reservoirs and pipes and the literature on ancient Rome's water is fascinating because people would steal water, divert it illegally, and so on. But a lot of this water went into households, obviously, and for water for the city. But the main purpose of it was public baths, which, of course, were far more than baths. They were places where people met for business, for political intrigue, to negotiate a house sale, whatever you like, to conduct a romance. And... A lot of these aqueducts were built by emperors or wealthy citizens as a kind of endowment. And 
the water was used in the baths. Then it, the waste was flushed out and was used to flush public toilets, which were always built close to the baths. And the toilets were communal. And in a way, they were like the sort of Starbucks of Roman times because you <laughs> sat in the toilets and did your business, both your biological business and your day-to-day business. You gossiped in the toilet. So it was a system which it was very easy to get used to being entitled to. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to What Are the Chances on Big Picture Science. We return to Molly's conversation with anthropologist Brian Fagan about humans' changing attitude toward water from ritualized and sacred to, by the Roman era, a commodity that was taken for granted. The Romans did not have pumps, although although I thought Archimedes invented a a rudimentary pump. He invented the Archimedes screw, which is basically a corkscrew. But these pumps, you see, don't lift water more than a few meters or feet. When you're talking fossil fuels, you're talking steam, you're talking electric, you're talking diesel, you're talking about the ability to be able to pump water from huge depths without doing it step by step. Now, was there anything in between Archimedes' screw and the fossil fuel pumps of the Industrial Revolution? When was was the first pump? there There were water wheels. And the first pump, I forget off time when I was developed, but the Industrial Revolution is always cited as a a big event with a capital E. Actually, it was a long process. And at some point, they began developing cylindrical pumps for pumping out mines. And it all began with mines. And from there to fossil fuels and pumping water from great depths and tapping groundwater was a matter of refining, particularly steam power. Because if you... Water wheels won't do it, won't lift from a depth, nor will human labor, but steam will. So what do you make of us today, 2,000 years later, with the audacity, depending on your definition of the word audacity, pumping water to a Southern California lawn, say, or to Las Vegas, which, with no offense to the residents of Nevada or Las Vegas, is a city in the middle of a desert, which otherwise shouldn't exist. Yes, the one of the most fascinating, and I'm going to answer your your question somewhat of a tangent here because this is interesting. One of the most fascinating things in this whole study that I did was Phoenix, which of course is another city, lot like Vegas, in the middle of an extremely arid terrain, and Phoenix is built on the remains of elaborate irrigation systems built by Native Americans which lasted a thousand years from about 500 AD to 1500 which were tapping the Gila and Salt rivers and all this irrigation system is under urban Phoenix. The earlier Native American system was self-sustaining 
Phoenix depends on water taken from groundwater, from the Colorado River. They are buying up water rights from ranches in Nevada, and they aren't in the long term self-sustaining. The Hurokam, these Native American people, were self-sustaining for a long period of time. And this is the one example in the book which seems to have triggered more interest than anything else. Well, then the big question is, and you're alluding to it here, is is what the damage has been in humans' need to control and successfully control water, at least in the short term. Because the upside is that you can live anywhere. So, so what is the downside? The downside is that there is a finite amount of water in the world. And short of desalinization, which is a method of producing water which is thwart with numerous difficulties, among them the cost of fossil fuels to process and move the water, you've got a situation now where most of the major aquifers in the world are being overdrawn and they're not being replenished. There are examples where systematic efforts are being made to replenish aquifers and groundwater. One, for example, in Orange County, where they have a very impressive system of replenishing the aquifer. But if you look at the world as a whole, you look at India, you look at Libya, you look at China, you look at other countries, the downdrafting of aquifers from deep pumping without regard to their sustainability in the long term is a recipe for serious problems in the future. One of the most fascinating things about water is you and I just turn a faucet on and we have water. We take this for granted. And when we're told there's a water problem or even a crisis, which is a word I hate, we almost deny it. We're in denial. We continue to water our golf courses, our lawns to grow thirsty crops. Why do you hate the word crisis when we talk about water? Because I'm sick and tired of books and publications which wave their hands and talk about watermageddon as if it's coming next month. They press the alarm bells, but they don't have solutions. What we've really got to do, and this is where the past is helpful to us, is really sit down and spend a great deal of time planning for the future. And I think... What's happened in our society is water has become like gasoline, electricity, even food, where it's just a commodity which we feel we're entitled to and we pay for. What we lack is a consistent, instinctive behavior that water conservation is the most fundamental thing we do, and it must be very fundamental. However, having said that, to change people's views on conservation so that it does become instinctual is incredibly hard because what you're trying to do is change the value systems of our society. And the value systems of an industrialized civilization do not necessarily include respect for water. Brian Fagan is anthropologist emeritus at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and he's the author most recently of Elixir, a History of Water and Humankind. Brian Fagan, thank you very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Water is important to humans, but its basic essentialness is not limited to Earth. Follow the water is the mantra of NASA in looking for life beyond our world. Michael Meyer is the lead scientist for the Mars Exploration Program, the suite of all science missions to Mars, Michael, why is NASA's mantra, follow the water, and not, let's look for life? 
One of the reasons why we don't use a different mantra, such as let's look for life, is because in many ways we don't quite know how to do that because we only have one example of it here on Earth. So we don't have a good definition of life. So that's one of the problems. The other is that we're not quite sure where to look to start with. And water is a key. So if you find where water has been or is today, then at least there's the potential for life and you can start expanding that search. Why is life so inextricably tied to water, Michael? What is it about water? Water is the elixir of life. It is the solvent that we use. We as in every single living thing here on this planet. It is possible for some other liquid form to be the carrier, to be the solvent that life uses. But we certainly know that it's possible for water to be a solvent because we have one example of it. But is that water's function when it comes to life simply as a solvent to sort of uh, get the chemistry going? I mean, it's uh, often said you take a chemistry set, you throw it on the floor, nothing really happens until you douse it with water and then suddenly you get reactions. Well, water is a very interesting thing. It has some unusual properties, a wide range of temperature that is liquid, and it's polar, meaning that the H2O, the two hydrogens and the oxygen, are not symmetric, so there is tends to be a positive end and a negative end to the water molecule. And because of that, it can dissolve lots of other things. It can help break apart other compounds. So it does a lot of really good things that life needs to move molecules around. So water has the advantage that because of uh, the fact that the electrons in a little H2O molecule tend to be on one side of the molecule more than on the other side of the molecule, it has this polar property and it can take apart other molecules. It can facilitate the chemistry of these other molecules. That's pretty good. And I suppose it accounts for the fact that we wash most of the stuff we wash in, in water. But there are other liquids on other nearby worlds. I mean, what about the lakes on Titan? They're, they're probably made of liquid natural gas. Uh, is that something we ought to be following? Or is the fact that it's not polar mean that no life there? Well, there's the potential for something like liquid methane to be a solvent. And as a solvent, it would be very different for life to use that. So it's not impossible. It's just harder to imagine something that would have the property of life being able to use liquid methane, for instance, as the solvent. If we were to find liquid water, uh, maybe under the surface of Mars, maybe under the ice of a moon like Europa and so forth, would, would that be fresh water or would it be salt water? And if salt water, would that be okay for life? Well, the idea of finding salt water or fresh water, in some ways, that's a distinction that we make because we live on this planet that has an ocean that has a certain salinity, you know, 32 parts per thousand. And water that we find on land tends to have much, much less salt in it. I would expect on any other planet, if they have liquid water, you could get a wide range of salinity content, you know, salt dissolved in the water. Having salt in the water does not preclude life. In fact, we have life that lives in fresh water, and we have life that lives in salt water. And uh, we have life that lives in even saltier water. So there's not a real distinction between on that spectrum. It's just the amount of stuff that's dissolved in the water. Well, Michael Meyer, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk, Seth. 
Michael Meyer is the lead scientist for NASA's Mars Exploration Program. And just to give an idea how much water is in the universe, since we spoke with Michael, scientists reported the discovery of water molecules around a black hole 12 billion light years away. And incidentally, the amount came to 100 trillion times as much water as in all the oceans of Earth. So it truly is water, water everywhere. Okay, if we send humans to Mars, sure, they'll need water. But astronauts living on the International Space Station need water now, and they have it, from a water recycling system that takes human urine and turns it into drinking water. It's pragmatic, says Michael Flynn, a principal investigator for NASA's Advanced Life Support Branch, whom Seth visited at his lab at Ames Research Center. Water is heavy, and so it's expensive to launch into space. Consider how much water you need to take along on a human mission to Mars. The average person requires anywhere between 3 to 15 liters per day. The difference between those is are you just drinking the water or are you also like washing your hands and taking a shower and washing the dishes, right? Those are the differences between those numbers. So you can imagine that if you have a mission to Mars that takes three years, that's an awful lot of water that would need to be brought there. You'd be talking in tens of billions of dollars to just bring water along on that long a mission. That's even more expensive than the bottled water I buy at the local uh, supermarket. Okay, so you're doing this now. Are any of our current space activities using recycled water? Yeah, absolutely. If you were an astronaut on the International Space Station today, you drink uh, primarily recycled urine and recycled humidity condensate. In addition to that, the oxygen that you breathe uh, comes from uh, recycled water as well. So recycling water, when I think of doing that, I think of, well, all right, I'll take this dirty water, urine, whatever, and I'll just boil it. Couldn't we just do that? Uh, and that is exactly what they do on the International Space Station. They have a, a distillation system that distills the urine. Turns out, though, that if you just boil urine, you don't get potable water out of it. Anybody who's ever urinated knows there's a smell associated with it. And so you've got to deal with that as well. So they also have a, a post-treatment system that takes out all those smelly organic compounds. Okay, but I'm standing here in your lab at the NASA Ames Research Center, and I look around, I don't see any uh, tea kettles or anything that looks to me like a distillation setup. How, how are you approaching this problem? Actually, the tea kettle is right behind you there. Uh, that's a distillation system right there. It doesn't quite look like a tea kettle, but uh, that's probably the most advanced uh, evaporator in the world right now. It has the lowest power consumption of any distillation system, I believe, that's ever been manufactured. It's called the VIPCAR, Vapor Phase Catalytic Ammonia Removal System. And just to give you an idea, if you boil water on that stove in that tea kettle, it's going to cost you about 640 watt-hours per liter to do it, right? That's a lot of energy to boil water. And this system behind you will do it for anywhere between 50 to 100 watt-hours per liter. Now, I noticed looking around that you have a bunch of plastic bags lying on the table here, and I uh, suspect that this has something to do with your research. Yes. Uh, one of the things we've learned, the, the International Space Station experience of developing water recycling systems for the Inter International Space Station has been very useful in identifying what are really the problems associated with recycling water in the long term, and that typically it's reliability. You know, you, if you're going to recycle urine, you want it to work, and you don't want it to break down. Right? And traditional approaches, mechanical kind of approaches, have that. That's a problem. They're going to typically break down. You but know. With just mechanical failure? Just mechanical. <laughs> Anybody who has a car, right? You know, it's going to break down. There's a certain amount of breakdowns that are going to occur, right? You take it to the, you take it to the mechanic and get it fixed. Well, what if you're on your way to Mars 
and your urine treatment system breaks down and you don't have enough water to make this mission, the mission's over then, right? So having very, very reliable systems that require no human interface and will not break down of the key. And that's what these bags are. Some of these bags are passive water treatment systems that really don't have a failure mode. There's no way for them to actually break down. How do they work? Explain to me. I mean, one of these bags is right here. What yeah. So these are forward osmosis bags. And uh, forward osmosis is something that you probably don't realize you're familiar with, but you actually are very familiar with. I have to say, forward osmosis sounds like one of the Egyptian pharaohs to me. And, and uh, the Egyptian pharaohs uh, did use forward osmosis as well. Uh, so anybody who's uh, you know eaten, tried to have dinner on a humid day is familiar with forward osmosis because that's why the salt doesn't come out of your salt shaker. Turns out that the uh, salt and any kind of molecule exhibits something called osmotic pressure or osmotic potential. And for the salt shaker, the osmotic pressure is higher than the partial pressure of humidity. So the salt takes the humidity out of the air and makes the salt clump together, and that's why it won't come out, right? For yourself, as a human being, your small intestine uses basically the same approach. In your small intestine, you have a membrane. On one side is blood. The other side is what you drank that morning. And you have a higher osmotic potential in your blood than what you drank, and therefore the water is absorbed into your body. If you drink, for instance, seawater that has a lot of salt in it, now the osmotic equation is flipped. Now what's in your inside your gut has a higher osmotic potential than your blood, and so the water goes the other direction. And that's why you should never drink seawater in order to try to quench your thirst. Okay, so this osmotic barrier, and I'm thinking of this as you have two different kinds of liquids separated by a membrane, which is, if you look at it close enough, is just a screen, right? It's just a filter. So you have maybe bigger molecules on one side than on the other side, so you know only the small molecules can go through the barrier but it's the osmotic pressure that actually makes them go through? Absolutely. That's a, that's a very good description of how it works. Uh, you have a, a membrane, a semi-permeable membrane, separating two fluids. One fluid has a higher osmotic potential than the other fluid, and therefore uh, water is going to tend to equilibrate that pressure. Now, if the membrane will allow water to pass but not any contaminants, then water can easily flow back and forth, but the contaminants cannot. And the water will eventually make the concentration on both sides the same. So you get the, uh, if you will, the dirty water or the water that you don't want to deal with on one side, and you get clean water on the other side. Uh, these bags, I mean, what happens? Do people urinate into these bags and uh, then, you know, there's maybe an inner bag? I mean, how, how does it work? Right, so, so the bag works exactly the way you described. You have a membrane, and on one side of the membrane you have urine or dirty water, and on the other side you have something with a high osmotic potential. And in the bags what we're using is country time lemonade. We buy powdered country time lemonade, put it on one side of the bag, and that's basically pure sugar is what it is. So it has a very high osmotic potential. And so the water, of course, is going to move across the membrane and dilute out the uh, country time lemonade until it's basically the same concentration as on the feed side, which is you know, a concentration that makes it palatable to drink. OK. How long does it take to, for example, uh, I don't know, do a gallon's worth of uh, wastewater? Yeah, so uh, th these processes are typically slow. So they take about uh, four to eight hours for them to come to equilibrium. Uh, so, you know, this product is actually commercially available. You can actually buy it on the internet. And uh, they sell for, like, backpacking applications. They sell it to the military and, you know, in desert environments. And uh, probably the most important one is for disaster relief. For disaster relief applications, you know, they can ship thousands of these things anywhere over the world and keep people alive. For people who live, like, here in California, where we have earthquakes, or people who live where there's hurricanes or something like that, you really should have one of these products stashed under your bed because they have a very long shelf life, 7 to 10 year shelf life. And if there ever is a disaster, you're ready to go. You just go find some dirty water, put it in there, and off you go. 
So could you use that conceivably in a spacesuit? Uh, yeah, the, uh, that's one of the development activities that we have is for like an emergency situation, for instance, on the International Space Station, if a piece of debris was to hit the space station and put a hole in it, like happened on Mir already at one point, and the atmosphere was to evacuate out of the station, the astronauts would have to do an emergency return to Earth, which takes about three days to do. They have to put on a pressure suit. The pressure suit restricts their ability to bring in fluids or bring in foods, and also they use a diaper for waste disposal in that application. So the idea is to integrate this bag into the pressure suit so they could urinate in the bag in the pressure suit and then it would produce a food byproduct product that would provide all the calories, all the water, and all the electrolytes they needed to keep themselves alive for a, a three-day return to Earth. And then once they return to Earth, assume they land in the water, then they could rip that bag out of their pressure suit and use it, actually use it to desalinate seawater until they are uh, rescued at sea. That's incredible, kind of a cafeteria in a bag that you wear inside your suit. Cafeteria in a bag. And, and you know, it's, uh, we're, it's, it's, it's inspired by your body. I mean, Basically, we are just taking the normal processes by which your body functions, meaning the small intestine area of your body, and just turning it into a product, just turning it into a form, fit, and function product. Mike Flynn, thanks so much for possibly saving my life. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Michael Flynn is a principal investigator for the Advanced Life Support Branch at NASA Ames Research Center. So, Seth, did Mike offer you a cup of water after you spoke with him? Well, actually, he didn't, Molly. And frankly, I'm glad he didn't because I wouldn't have known from which side of the osmotic membrane that water came from. Did you see any vending machines there? Uh, actually, I didn't. No, he probably keeps those hidden. Next, could high-tech devices for taking salt out of seawater be a solution to the world's dwindling freshwater supply? What are the chances on Big Picture Science? A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. I have here a glass of drinking water. Not the image we may want to have in our minds after that previous interview, Seth. I didn't say lemonade. Ooh. But uh, add that container of salt to this water, Molly. Okay, hang on. All right. Okay. Some salt's going in there. Hang on. Let me stir this up. Just a second. Ooh. Some salty water. Okay, well, now let me taste it. Yuck. It's undrinkable. Ugh. Our planet is covered with ocean. It could be more aptly named ocean or water than Earth. Yet the overwhelming majority of that water is salty and not at all drinkable. We can say that again. And of the fresh water that's on this planet, 70% is tied up in ice. And even though the same amount of water is in circulation today as there was during the time of the dinosaurs, there are humans now and lots of them. And as we heard from Brian Fagan, we've been trying to expand the fresh water supply ever since. Desalinization is one example. Now, it's one thing to get the salt out for a small group of astronauts in space. It's another to do so for the millions living in cities like Los Angeles or Cairo. I am Farouk Elbaz. I'm the director of the Center for Remote Sensing at Boston University. Farouk, desalinization, 
to what extent is this a necessity, even for countries that have a temperate climate? I mean, does the United States really need desalinization technology? There is no question about the fact that nearly all countries in the world require desalination for one reason or another. In the United States of America, we would need desalinization. In Florida and West and in the areas where you have groundwater that's a bit salty, so desalination is an important activity that we will need more of it in the future. Well, give me some perspective here, because obviously there's a lot of water on Earth, and I, I just made a very rough estimate here. I figured there's a couple of times 10 to the 20th cubic feet of water. I don't know. That's a big number. It, it works out to something like 5 or 7 billion gallons per person on Earth. Sounds like plenty of water to me. Yes, it's plenty of water, but most of it is in the wrong places. The vast majority of water is in the polar regions, locked up as ice. Presumably you're speaking about fresh water. What fraction of all the water on Earth is actually fresh water? The amount of fresh water on Earth is much less than 3%. So it's a very small amount of the overall water in the ocean. Well, confronting the problem here of turning salt water into fresh water that I can use to improve my gusto-grabbing lifestyle, I mean, if you ask me how to do that, I would say, well, it's easy. I mean, I just boil the stuff, right, and then condense it, and I've got the fresh water. What's wrong with that approach? It seems so dead obvious. It is nothing wrong with it at all except for the fact that it's very expensive because when you say boil it off, you need a lot of power to do that, and that power comes in from burning oil or coal so that... The heat that is required to boil the water is enormous and therefore much too expensive to become a a reasonable thing to do. Well, what about using solar cells? And in a lot of regions where you obviously would like to desalinate water, I mean, the Middle East being one of them, uh, you have a lot of sunlight, too. If we had solar cells that were maybe twice as efficient as the ones we have today, would that make a big difference in this problem? That would make a huge difference because you know that the, the, the solar cells that we have today use only about 15% of the solar rays that that hit them, which is terrible. I mean, this is not high-tech at all if you're using only 15% of the sun. So to double the usage of the solar radiation on these things and then figure out some way to get that uh, energy to boil the water of the sea so that you can get fresh water would be a huge positive development. What about some other approaches? Now, we've heard from a NASA researcher about recycling urine, for example, in space missions by using membranes, by using osmosis. Could we do the same to make fresh water from briny water? Oh, yes. Uh, reverse osmosis is happening now anyway. There are factories right now that use this process in the Gulf region that, and in, in Arabia and in other places that use that process to produce water, but it is still too expensive for the general use of water. Still expensive. Well, can you explain to me why it is? Because in a very naive way, I think osmosis, all you need is a membrane. You have the salty water on one side and you get fresh water on the other side and it doesn't sound like it takes any energy. Except- that is right. The, the, what happens, what needs to be done is that you push the salt water towards the membrane so it can penetrate the membrane and leave the salts behind. And when you have to push that water, means that you have to use energy, and that energy comes from burning oil or coal. <laughs> so it's still using electricity for to push. <laughs> it, it sounds like a catch-22 situation. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the, the fact that you need, you always need energy to do anything with water is bad news. That's why we say that uh, at least let us think of some cheaper way of energy by using solar energy. 
Well, how cheap does desalinization have to become before we'll see it in widespread use? I mean, if I go to Los Angeles and I turn on the bathtub there, I think that water comes from the Colorado River. It doesn't come from the Pacific Ocean, which is right adjacent to Los Angeles. And that's because, I mean, it's too expensive. Uh, What are we talking about? A factor of two decrease in price? A factor of 10? 10. A factor of 10. That's a lot. That's a lot. because of And and actually, solar energy would do it for you. Because you're not doing anything to to generate that uh, energy except it passively. So you're 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 spreading a sheet, and that uh, the cost of the sheet is what is really the cost. And then that uh, sheet is generating energy for you, and at all times as long as it stays clean. So there's not a running cost to it. But the capital cost is considerable. The capital cost is considerable now. We're thinking in the future the capital cost will be reduced a great deal because if we do the research, then we definitely know that the, the cost will, will be decreased. All right. Well, I don't know if you're a betting man, Farouk, but uh, if, if you had to bet, what do you see as the time scale for this sort of technology becoming very widespread, even in a country like ours where we have plenty of rivers and lakes? Ten years. Ten years. That's not so far. That's not too bad at all. Yeah, and I really think that we should have done that in the 70s when there was the first oil embargo. We should have done that right there and then, and we should have told the, the, the research institutions, including NASA, turn up your page and look for something to give us more energy from less uh, of the material that we're using today and find a way to desalinate for. Farouk Elbaz, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Farouk Elbaz is a geologist and director of the Center for Remote Sensing at Boston University. Getting the salt out is the name of the game, and that brings us back to the wetlands we visited earlier in the show at the south end of San Francisco Bay. At least they're becoming wetlands again. They had been industrial salt ponds, but now 15,000 acres are under restoration. And that means restoring the balance of NACL. Jean Bourgeois manages the country's largest wetland restoration project. The first step in this process, once we purchase these lands, put them back in public ownership for the sole purpose of, of wetland restoration, was to get the salinities back down. But we're not trying to get them below ambient base salinities. We're just trying to match the ambient base salinities because these were very high salinity ponds. We want, we want them to be the same as the bay. And ambient base is the, the salinity of the sea. That's correct. And actually, San Francisco Bay in this area is a little bit lower than ocean salinities because you do have the freshwater inputs from the delta and the local streams. So it's a little bit less salty than full-on ocean water. Well, why don't you just flood the whole area with fresh water from from the rivers, and wouldn't that bring the salinity down? That's in essence what we did, but we had to do it in a very controlled and stepwise manner. Some of these ponds had extremely high salinities, and so we didn't want to just release all that water out to the bay and shock the system. We didn't want to have impacts to those species living just on the other side of the levees that weren't used to those salinities. So the way they made salt, they only had one intake point and they never discharged back to the bay. So they brought it in here, they would concentrate the salt, then they would pump it to another pond and so on and so forth until it got salty enough for them to just harvest the salt. So they never actually discharged back to the bay. So what we did was we came in and we put in about 53 new water control structures to reconnect this system of ponds, and we're talking you know, dozens and dozens of ponds, back to the bay in strategic location. So we could start circulating bay water through these slowly and bring it in, move it from pond to pond, dilute the salts, 
and then slowly release them to the bay. And we wanted to do it in a strategic and, and, and respectful manner to the ecosystem on the other side of the levee. We have a lot of uncertainties. These ponds have been around, some of them, for over 100 years, and there's a whole suite of species that have been using the ponds. So as we restore these back to tidal marsh, we don't want to have impacts on those species. So we're doing a couple of things. One, we're restoring some of these ponds to tidal marsh right away. We're taking down levees, we're restoring the natural processes, we're letting the sediments come in and the vegetation established, and we're going to see nice, healthy, thriving marshes. On the other side of the equation, these ponds were engineered to make salt. They weren't designed as wildlife habitat, but there are certain wildlife species that happen to like them. So we're trying to take a subset of ponds and design them specifically for those wildlife species. So we're building nesting islands, we're managing the water level so that it's right at the right level for those species for foraging and making sure we have good water quality through the ponds for them. Now I wonder if you could say a word about some of the species that are coming back. We're seeing these beautiful pelicans here and, and the other shorebirds. Have species returned to the wetlands now that you're restoring them? Well, one of the first thing that happened was once we started to bring the salinities in these ponds down, we saw the waterfowl numbers dramatically increase. So what's good for one species isn't good for another species. So there are species that like these really high salinity environments, some microbes and such. But as we brought the salinities down and they started to match the base salinities, we saw our duck numbers in particular really go through the roof. Do you know why different salinities appeal to different species? I mean, ducks can't drink salt water, so why do they care what the salinity is? It's all about, the for the birds, it's all about their prey base, what they're eating. So whether they're eating small fish or clams on the bottom, those are the, the base of the food chain that are supporting these species. And if you have these really high salinity environments, they're not supporting the right food species for these birds. How long will it take to restore it to the way that it was, or as close as you can get to the way that it once was? Well, believe it or not, this is a 50-year project. We're a little under 10 years in. We've already got a couple thousand acres opened back up to the bay, and we're very encouraged by the progress we're seeing. We're seeing marsh vegetation come in faster than we expected. We're seeing fish species return to the South Bay that we hadn't expected. So, so we're very encouraged by the speed with which things are happening. But it's a big project, so it's going to take uh, several decades. But if you gauge by all the birds that we see here today, it's headed in the right direction. I definitely feel it's headed in the right direction. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Jean Bourgeois is a biologist and the executive project manager of the South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project. Well, Molly, it's encouraging, even by the sound of it. The birds are coming back. That's right. Humans just need to help to undo what they did and then get out of the way. The critters will take it from there. Well, that's it for this program, Water the Chances. In the case of the South Bay wetland, the chances for recovery look pretty good. Our thanks to a production team that is the salt of the earth and not all wet. Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Keith Rosendahl, and Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced in our commodious radio studio here at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. You can find Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program.
get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.